This is Bar Crawl Radio. We're recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street in Manhattan. We're at the end of the summer of 2019. Today, we're going to explore two men's stories. One a father, the other a son. David Hirsch was a survivor of KZ Mauthausen, a World War II Nazi concentration camp in Austria. A man with a pleasant disposition, David Hirsch, as a teen, survived the horrors of Nazi camps. Then, as American forces descended into Nazi territory, David Hirsch escaped two death marches, the only person to have done so. Today on Bar Crawl Radio, we're talking with Jack Hirsch, who wrote a book about his father's experiences and why this story has haunted him throughout his life and the questions he needed to answer. Jack Hirsch is David's son. He wrote Death March Escape, the remarkable story of a man who escaped the Nazi Holocaust. Jack is clearly a writer of some talent, but his day job is as a strategic advisor to investment institutions and corporate managements. He has served as corporate board member and has guest lectured in the business schools of MIT, USC, and USC Berkeley. And I just recently we learned he's now teaching at Turo College Intro to Finance and Real Estate. And he lives, in fact, in New York City. Also, Jack Hirsch is a pilot who flies acrobatic planes. Aerobatic planes. Aerobatic. Aerobatic planes. Oh, that's not acrobatic. You wrote acrobatic. I wrote acrobatic. So aerobatic. What is an aerobatic plane? I wrote aerobatic. No, that's a C there, honey. Oh, I wrote acrobatic. It's an an airplane that goes upside down, does loops, does rolls. Well, there's acrobats, though. There's, aero, there's acrobatic stuff, Are but when you do it in the air, it's, it's aerobatic. Okay, yeah. okay. You still do that? I do, but not as often as I'd like. Cause Can we go sometime? That's scary. No, you. <laughs> yeah, do you ever take a passenger with you? No. No. Uh, no. I have, in fact, the friends I've taken up say, promise me you won't turn us upside down. I go, yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Well. So it's like a Cessna or a... Well, actually, there is a Cessna that can do it, but no, it's things like the Extra or the Pits or Stearman. Or there's, there are planes. I don't know exactly what are you're talking about. Are they prop planes? They are prop planes, but I've flown with jet fighters, too. Wow. So, um, wow, wow, wow. Wow. Amazing. Okay. I don't think we have to, it's take, not what we, it's not I don't what think we have to take that out. No, I like that. It's uh, all good stuff. Yeah. So he earned a second-degree black belt in... Gallo Rayo Karate. I said, I said Ryu. <laughs> it's just... It's Goju Ryu. Ryu. Okay. Well, Ryu. I, had a, I, I had a student named Ryu. R-Y-U. Yeah. No, I, I think maybe it's Americanized. Ryu. It's, it's Ryu. Just Goju Ryu. Goju Ryu. Okay. So that's not the thing where you cut the wood in half with your hand? or. Gen- well, that's... More traditional Korean type, mm-hmm. and some of the harder Japanese like styles. Like ha- We had, yeah, we happened not to do that. We didn't do board breaking, but um, you know, it's they're all the same. In the end of the day, they're kick, block, punch. Right, um, right, right. They're, yeah. they're, 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 the, the Korean, the Japanese, and the Chinese forms are somewhat different, and right. you, you learn what the differences are. But at the end of the day, kick, block, punch. Okay. Sounds like a whole other show. So wait, <laughs> it's more. That. There's more. There's more. I know. He's Jack a has done more. Long-distance cyclist and ice hockey player. He plays tennis at a competitive level and ran five marathons. And my partner here tells me that you ran the last one on a broken Achilles. Um, A torn something. I I, I tore a muscle. The last seven miles, I tore a muscle in my calf. In your calf, Um, okay. Actually, my first marathon uh, was seven miles to go. Um, And I met some friends who were going to it's called banditing. They were going to bandit me, and, and they looked at me like, "Why am I limping?" And I said, "Because I just tore my calf muscle." Oh, you knew that's what you had yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. And they, okay, I heard it pop, and they said, "Well, does it hurt when you walk?" I said, "It's killing me." And they said, "Well, does it hurt when you run?" And I said, "Yeah, it's killing me." They said, "Well, if it hurts when you walk, and you hurt when you run, you just you might, might as, as well, well run." run. <laughs> and right. so that's I did. Funny. And honestly, and I actually talk about it in the book, I channeled my yeah, father the entire right. way yeah. through. Right. It's yeah. like, right. if he and could do it, I could do it. Yeah. And of course, we're going to be wow. talking about your father and your relationship and his, his early life. So. so, Jack, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. There are many children of Nazi Holocaust, there are many children of Nazi Holocaust survivors, but few have spent time discovering their parents' past. You dedicated a lot of time into researching, traveling, and interviewing experts to uncover how your father beat death by the Nazi killing machines. I did, yes. Why did you write this book? Well, why I researched the book and why I wrote the book are sort of two different questions. It started with the research. Um, I was triggered, my interest was triggered. I, I, I knew my father's story my entire life. He, he told it 
every Passover, we were Orthodox, so we told it twice on Passover, the two nights of the Seder. You know, it's, the Seder is the story of the Jews escaping from Egypt in the dead of night, and my father would digress to tell his story of escaping from concentration camp twice. Um, so I knew it. But what I didn't know until 2007 was that he was somewhat famous in the concentration camp. In Mudhausen, Mudhausen became a museum. Um, it was not a well-known concentration camp because very few Jews were actually kept there, um, and so very few Jews were killed there. But it was the single worst concentration camp in the Reich. It was self-rated by the Nazis as the worst. They, the Austrian government had turned it into a museum um, a few years before I discovered my father's photo, or my, a few years before my cousin discovered my father's photo on the internet, they had posted it up there along with the caption saying he'd been found by a local Austrian family and hidden until the end of the war. My cousin happened to be searching for something for her mother, turns this up, calls me up six years after my father died. This is your died. cousin who lives in Israel. My cousin who lives in Israel, yes. Yeah. So six years after my father died, she calls me up and she says, it, we're very close, she calls me up and she says, you're never going to believe this, your father's on the internet, go Google him. And this photo turns up with the caption. I didn't even know Munhausen had a, an internet, a website. So, and you hadn't, you hadn't gone to it yourself. It was your cousin who went to it my, and, my, and, and, sh- and said, take a look at this. Correct. My cousin found it on the internet, just coincidentally, um, and says, you got to look at this. Here's a picture of your dad. And then I don't have the photo. So I reach out to the concentration camp. Who are you guys? You know, what, Why, what do, is you Why do you have my dad's photo? How do you know his story? That led to years of discovering all this extra information about the story. I knew the story. My, my father was a really interesting, engaging guy. And he told it in an interesting and engaging way. Now, there is nothing, there's something certainly interesting, but nothing engaging about spending a year working as a slave, as a, as a laborer in a concentration camp. But somehow my father made it that way. And now I spent years working with historians to, to learn what really was, had happened to him, that his story, but You're without the, the embellishment, without the, the, story. the story behind the story is exactly right. And then a few years after I started, I got on a plane and I went there. Yep. Uh, many years after I started, I got on a plane and I went there, and we, by that point, we knew, or they knew, what the death march route was. When I started in 2007, they didn't even know what the death march route was from Mudhausen to, it was a 34-mile route to a camp um, called, called Gunzkirchen. That's where he escaped from twice. They didn't know what the route was in 2007. By the time I went in 2016, they knew. The, the people that were there the historians the, the histor- the people running the, the memorial who were enormously interested in it hugely well there was there was a subtext to it which actually goes into to that initial question you asked me why I wrote the book the Austrian government had spent many years d- denial is not the right word but trying to downplay their role in World War II they wow. were victims and they certainly were victims but they were also not completely victims. Right. Um, and so they felt that, that they were compliant. They they were somewhat compliant, and, and so the the governments had never quite known what to do with Munhausen, Munhausen the worst camp in the Reich, and it's right in their territory. It's, it's 15, 20 miles. And I wonder from the how many people border. have heard of Munhausen. I mean, we hear of Auschwitz and Birkenau, and well, that's right, because it was not really a, a camp for Jews. It was a labor camp. It was very much like Auschwitz, the labor camp, not Auschwitz II, or otherwise known as Birkenau, so the who death was, camp. Who was sent there? Uh, political prisoners, incorrigible POWs, um, communists, uh, gypsies, okay. uh, gays, uh, people they didn't want, political prisoners, um, Russians, Russian prisoners of war were sent there. It, it was a rock mine. It was a working mine. Right. And, the, and the point of it was to work to death these people they wanted dead anyway, but they might as well get something out of them. I, 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 could, I, I, want, I want to kind of get also the, the, the other part of this story, which is your relationship with your father. Sure. And as we go along, I, I want to hear more of the details sure. of, of your investigation. And we also want to hear about, you know, some details about Mudhausen. Yeah, of course. And, and, uh, and the other, uh, was it Gilson? Uh, Goosen. 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 Right, right. right. But so, he hasn't answered yet why he wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, right. but I think, I, so, I think, yeah, I think we can get to that. Well, I think that we're going to get question. to that. Yeah, well, so, the, <laughs> that the, so the, the, the short answer to why I wrote the book is because in my research, I realized I had a story to tell. The reason why I did the research was because I realized the story my father told me was not quite the full picture. Right. And and there was some yearning there, too. Very much. Uh, You know, look, I'm very close to my... I was very close to my dad. I loved him like I can't describe. And um, 
to realize, well, he, he went and visited the camp in 1997. Uh, he died in a one. Uh, he never told me he went. When I real, and, but my cousin knew because my cousin's mother, my, my father's yeah. sister knew. Yeah. My aunt, right. Knew that um, he had revisited the camps visited, after, what, 50 years? Well, so, uh, well, 1945 was when he was liberated, and this was 1997. Right, so 40, some 42 years, 43 years, 42 years. 50. 50. 50, 50 yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do so I do for a living? You're in high what finance. Do I, what do yeah. I do for a living? 50, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thank <laughs> but we're doing this in a bar. Yeah, okay. am, am I blushing? Can you see? Look, you're getting um, drunk from your water and lemon okay, there. Clearly. Um, <laughs> So anyway, yes, fifty something years, yeah. and he went back, and and I, and he didn't tell me he went, and I, I thought he told me everything, and so what was the big secret? What did he? Right. And it, you know, it, it took an entire decade of research to discover what the secret was, and it wasn't in the end such a huge secret. All right, let's not get to the secret. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's 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 let's, build, let's kind of Good. build to that. Okay. Good. All right. All right. Um, your father, David Hirsch. Yeah. Um, told a story as you said each year around at the pass at the Passover Seder. Right, right. I mean, from my perspective, I'm I'm Jewish. This is indeed the Passover story. Yeah, the no, march. No, no question about it. It, it is, it, it is escaping from tyranny. Yep. Um, and my father did it twice. Yep. And uh, it was, it, you know, as I tell people, if you escaped from, twice from the Nazis, you'd be telling people. And so he he enjoyed. He was not like most survivors. You know, the, the typical image you have, I believe, you have as a survivor. Certainly, the image that, that, that the popular press, that the movies, Schindler's List, that shows right. you at the end of the movie. I'm not I'm not crazy about that. Uh, movie. Mor- morose, morose. Yes. They know. don't smile. They don't crack a joke. Right. They haven't yeah. laughed since 1945 or 1943 or whenever mm-hmm. they were sent to the camps. My father was nothing like that he was a funny interesting engaging good looking or 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 as his friends used to say yeah your father's good looking just ask him Uh, (laughs) he was i mean look at the photo that that headshot photo that was on the internet yeah that that he said he was a good looking guy and he knew it but he was he was the life of the party kind of guy and he was so much unlike any other survivor and i didn't know i mean his friends were the same way they were interesting and funny and engaging too so this is all I knew about survivors. And when I, when I realized, back to the question about why I wrote the book, another reason was when I came to realize what the rest of the, the world believes survivors are all about, and my father was nothing like that, I needed to tell the world, wait a minute, some of these guys were pretty ordinary. They, they had a horrific year or two or three. And then they did everything in their power, some of them, to be as normal as they could possibly be. And they, they put those demons as far back down as they could, and it would come out at night. They didn't talk and it would about come it. out. They, 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 and, it, you know, my father had plenty of demons, and he had trouble sleeping plenty of times. But the guy you knew, the guy at dinner, was not that guy. Right. And, and, and at, the, at the end of, of, of your book, uh, we're going to have you read a piece of it before we, we leave here. Uh-huh. Um, you kind of bring all that together. Yeah. Uh, and I think you do it beautifully. I was just, um, I had read all through the whole thing. Um, Becky hadn't quite got through the whole thing. And I said, you got to hear this ending. Uh, that kind of brings everything together. But what, what, what I wanted to ask was that um, there was one Seder, the last Seder yeah. that, that you had with him. It was you and him. Yes, yes. It wasn't the family. Correct. Um, amazing. I mean, I, I see the scene in the movie, it, right? It, it was a lucky coincidence but he invited you he like it was like a command performance it's like he said you're going to come and i'm going to tell you this i was living in san diego um we had we had our seder plans for san diego my father lived in long island long beach long island um he had he needed heart surgery and a few weeks before the seder he said hey do you want to come for seder i hadn't been there and i'm guessing around a decade i mean i moved i moved out of the house i i have a family i've got kids i've got whatever i've got and it just wasn't on the radar. Uh, and he was so orthodox. He wasn't flying out. We, seders for us were not what they are for, for many people in America. Um, you know, these big, huge communal family gatherings. There was for my family as an adult with kids. We had neighbors and friends, Jewish and not Jewish. Not when I was growing up. It was a traditional Seder, just the family, three hours long. Follow the Haggadah, the, the book that you were supposed to follow. Right, yeah. um, including your father telling the story. Including my father telling the story. Of his well, exodus. Uh, absolutely, of his, of his own exodus and, his, yeah. and the Jews' exodus. Um, and all of a sudden he says, can you come out? And I'm like, bells are going off. This isn't normal. And what it really was all about, he had surgery coming up. And he just 
wanted his, his oldest son there. His, his, he knew his younger son, four years young, my brother four years younger than me, wasn't going to come. He had a family of his own, not far away, but again, it wasn't a question. We, we, he wasn't going to invite my dad, and my dad wasn't going to invite him because that was never going to be able to happen religiously, that's all. Yeah, yeah. What was the feeling when, when he said, you know, Jackala? Yeah. That's what he's called you in the book. Yeah. You know, in life. Come, yeah. In life, yeah. Uh, come out. Come out here. It, it was a combination of, you know, what a great idea. I mean, why didn't I think of this? Because I really only did one major Seder the, the first night because we, we were not the religious, we weren't as religious as we were originally. But it was also, as I said, bells kind of went off. There was, there was something going on. There was a reason why he wanted me, and I figured I'd find it out when I got there. Yeah. And, and I, I think you did, maybe not that night, but in the ensuing nights when you were doing your, your research. We can't get to everything that's in this book. It's an amazing book. I'm just curious, though, yeah. when you would read the, um, when he would tell the story, would you listen raptly, or would you in any way be like... Like, this okay, is what he, dad, dad does this all the time. This already? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, was, it was rapt attention. He, yeah. he was... It was never lost on me how profound his experience was. Right. It was lost on me because of the way he told it, how horrific it was. Mm-hmm. It seemed, I'm not going to describe it as summer camp, but it didn't seem quite as as death-defyingly ominous as when I then went to the camp and stood in front of the, the, the building that he worked in for seven, eight months. Do you think that maybe if he told you all the true story that it would have made it that much more true for him in a way or did he want to downplay it because he didn't want you guys to have to understand that kind of I think I think it's both I think I think one he didn't want to have to go there he was perfectly happy remembering it in his engaging way and it wasn't a, it, it was wasn't a, it, a heroic story he, yeah, but he was entertaining himself uh, this, this is as deep as I'm going to go you know he was nearly beaten to death and he would chuckle about it a little bit oh you should have seen how they beat me yeah, okay that, that, that sounds hysterical dad um, but, but that's then you didn't you didn't at the moment of him telling this you didn't explore it and I, what I got from the book is your desire to say well why didn't I ask him more there was you hit it on the head there, that, that stayed with me from the minute I saw his photo on the internet why didn't I ever he was people? here I had him I now had him. I don't but you know it, I, in my conversations I've had with people about my book I've, I've ran into other, other second and third generation survivors not only of, of the Holocaust but of other incidences of people right. I was in Pittsburgh and people whose fathers served in, in combat units in, in Vietnam or World War II um, would say to me that you know they never said a word about it, and I never asked about it. You, there was some. It was wall. my father like that. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I didn't ask. There's some wall that, as a kid, I think as a child, you you say I, I can't penetrate this wall because I'm not being invited to penetrate it, right. or, or yeah. whatever the reason might be. I just didn't do it, and then I then I really regretted it. And when I speak to people, I tell people, you know, if your if your parents are still alive. Start digging now yep. while, they have, while they can answer your questions because yeah, it's yeah. so much harder later. Let's get to a little bit of the story. Uh, it is fascinating. We can't get to all of it. Sure. Um, it's the last year of the war, 1944. The war ended in 45, right? right? Your father's family was um, working in Austria, Dej? Uh, Hungary. Dej, Hungary, right? And... Um, in 1944, the Nazis decided to round up the Hungarian Jews. They had a soap factory, so they, right, they were doing right. okay. What happened to them? So, before the spring of 1944, their lives really were not especially different than it was before the Nazis came in. The, the Nazis didn't really come into Hungary in a big way because the Hungarian, Hungarian region who ran the country didn't allow them. And as long as he towed the line with the Nazis, they were kind of okay with it. But, but by early 1944, he was planning to leave the Nazi fold, and so the Nazis and Adolf Eichmann and company came in in a big way that late winter, early spring. Um, and at that point, my father's life really changed. He had been attached to something called the Labor Battalion, where once a week, he was 16, 17 years old, lived at home, once a week, he had a clean streets and parks, and not just him, other Jews, other communists and intellectuals and people that they just wanted to put in these battalions. His brother, a few years older, had been shipped away to a battalion that 
uh, was working in the countryside. I don't even know where, um, but closer to the Russian border or the, the Russian army that was approaching, I should say. Um, and so that was, other than those services, other than service in the labor battalion, that was the only real impact. May 3rd, 1944, overnight, he and his family are ordered into a ghetto. Yeah, describe that ghetto, because it's not the kind of ghetto that we think of like Warsaw not ghetto. Little, exactly. No right. you, you hear the word ghetto, you think of the Warsaw ghetto. Maybe you think of the, the Venice ghetto, which, you know, if you've been to Venice, you, you discover they have it. No, this was a field in a forest, and I've been there. It is a few acres, um, trees. Uh, they gave them wood and canvas and said, knock yourselves out. This so there's no yours. water, there's no sewage. There's no nothing there they're is. camping. They're, they're essentially There's camping. There's no stores or anything. It's just out in the forest they're, someplace. For 7,000 odd people. Oh, my and God. And they had a forage. And they, they, they had, they, I don't know what their lives were food-wise, um, whether or not they were given food or had a, I, I just never investigated and, and couldn't find anything in my, the digging that I did do. <laughs> um, but they had to live there for what turned out to be about a month. And that was actually my father's first big break. A few days into it, they were looking for a baker. And my father said, he's a baker. This guy has nerve. My oh, father yeah. had huge nerve. And, um, and my father had, it turned out he'd had a friend who, whose family were bakers. Maybe they were already pressed into service somewhere because he wasn't in the picture, this guy, is the friend. My father said, I'm a baker. And he... Knew nothing about baking. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, he, <laughs> you know, he hung around his mom, right? Whatever yeah. she did. But he, um, he turned into be a decent baker. And they let him live in town and had three German soldiers working for him. Wow. At, at, at all 17 years old, or, or 18 at that point. So, KT Mudhausen has been called the most brutal of the Nazi concentration camps. Yes. What did you learn about KT Mudhausen so and the auxiliary K- camps? KZ. KZ. KZ Mudhausen and the auxiliary camps, Goosen 1 and 2. What were these places like? Eventually, he was, he was transferred there. Well, so Mudhausen is not only the main camp, um, it's, it tends to be the one that people know the best. It had something like 40 subcamps. The subcamps were all administered and run by Mudhausen, and many people who stayed at the subcamps, it's names you never heard of, we just say they were in Mudhausen. It, it's just like a, it's like a satellite office a block away. So, so Guzen, Mudhausen was a granite mine, purposely built right along a tremendous rock wall that they were mining for granite, for roadbeds and for tra- railroad track beds and for building facades. Um, Guzen was two, mile, two and a half miles away, a little bit downhill, a little bit to the west. Also, a series of rock mines by the, a town called Guzen, and they, they built a concentration camp administered by Mudhausen, and that was where they sent my father. My father's arrival in Mudhausen, he took a shower there, um, they, they signed him in there, and they shipped him up two miles down to this satellite camp of theirs. It's just like, you know, a, a different barracks run right. by the same administration. So Munhausen is there today, and so walking around there, you can really, you can see barracks, you can see administrative buildings, you can, there's a museum there. Um, it is a remarkable site, but for me, not quite as remarkable as Guzen, because Guzen was where my father physically worked. Right. And the building that he worked in, it was called the... the um, um, Stone Crusher. Thank you. <laughs> the building my father worked in, the Stone Crusher, um, is still there. It is part of a working rock uh, granite mill, not a mine anymore. The mine, at least they're not running. But they're running it as a mill, and the guy who owns it... The same Stone Crusher that the Nazis were running is... The still- same crusher. The building is there, but it, the building no longer has any function. It's empty. Yeah. Um, and it was partially, there were, it was a trio of buildings. There's a photo in the book. Yeah. Um, the outlying building about 30 feet away is, is gone, but the, the, the two, a pair of buildings connected, a storage building and what turned out to be the loading building for the mine, for the crusher, are still there. It's on the property of this rock, rock uh, granite mill, and it's owned by a family called Porschacker, who's, who's the guy who runs it is around my age, studied at the University of Arizona, huh. a perfectly nice guy. They didn't own it during the war. They have no culpability in this whatsoever, but it's sitting there yep. in this working It rock. seems strange, though, that it would still be in operation. It, it sounds incredible to me. In, in Munhausen itself, 
their rock mine is a memorial, and you can go there and you can walk around it, and it's not working. But this is a this this Porschacker mill in Guzen is operating, and I just heard it's up for sale now. And there's a possibility the government may buy it and turn it into a memorial. To a memorial. Well, they're gonna, serious about this. About they are, they're very serious, and I'm going to credit my book for it. The, 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 the historians tell me that the, the publicity that helped, that was generated in part by the book, but in part also by the efforts that this histo- these historians have made are beginning to have, make headway, and they might really turn it into a memorial, yeah. finally. You know, the, the, the horror of Mutthausen and Gulson Two and then Gusin, 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 which was even worse. You, 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 had, you had found out, and you describe in your book. Uh, what I want to do is kind of get to a little bit of the horror of this, sure, if we if we can get to Tell it. Me. I mean, I, I think getting jumping into the book, you kind of get lost, like in any book. You can get, and this is really nicely written. I mean, it's well written Thank and you. W- well described. Thank you. Um, you describe in your book the various people who inhabited this hellhole, um, hell holes. Um, who were the prisoners in KZ Mudhausen? They were not all Jews, and we talked about that. But there were also guards and capos who were Jews or other prisoners. Who capos. Were, who were, capos. Capos. Who were, and, and these people seemed to be quite gruesome. In, well, the, the guards were all SS, right? Yeah. And so you volunteered for the SS. You pledged your allegiance to, to Adolf Hitler. You were the worst of the worst. You, you believed everything. Well, you didn't think you were selling. the worst of the worst. But but now looking at it from, from yeah. our view, yeah, certainly. Um, listen, if you believe that the only right and true um, uh, humans are Aryans, well, I think you're. I'll call you the worst of the yeah. worst. Yeah, no, we no. get it. I, I agree I'm, with I'm you. I'm happy to, t- to do that. But yeah. but um, so in the camp, um, the prisoners, both in Guzen One, Guzen Two, and Mutthausen, were for the most part political prisoners, incorrigible POWs. Um, communists, gays, gypsies. Um, Jews were only sent there in the spring of 1944 with the Hungarian Jews being deported to camps because they literally were running out of people to kill. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't, the the point of Mudhausen and Guzen was to work you to death. In fact, most people who were sent there, and just, well, to, yes, to, to, well, although interestingly, just as as a digression, so not only did they have a rock mine there, but Around Guzen, they had factories. They had a Messerschmitt factory. They had chemical factories. And so there were, in some cases, there were very high-level experts, prisoners, who were working there, people with great skills. Mm. They could starve them within an inch of their lives, but they couldn't kill them because they needed these people. And when they got ill, they would take them to they the hospital and pull them back and, to life. Hospitals and infirmaries for just that reason. They, right. couldn't, they couldn't have these people die on them. But they didn't have to feed them very much. They could treat them like garbage. Um, and so my father, who was simply working in a rock mine, he was in the category of people they were perfectly happy to kill them. But the problem with most of the people they were happy to kill, they were running out of these people. So they had to start sending Jews there. So Jews don't know much about this camp and weren't sent there in any significant numbers until 19, the, the, the middle of 1944. Late in the war. Yeah, very late in the war. And yet, though, the, 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 the product was death, yes. uh, in essence, the product was also granite. It was granite. Because the granite was actually used to act for building stuff. Uh, uh, Hitler needed granite to create the Thousand-Year Reich. You know, there's no more interestingly edifice building than a granite building. So um, make, make sense about, I want granite, and I've got these workers, and I want to kill them. It, it's, a, it, it's perfect. I, I've got to get the granite, and I've got to kill these people anyway. I might as well get something out of them before, the, before they die. Ah. Perfect. That's, well, that's how they thought about it. The, 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 and, and there's enough of them, we can kill them, and they can do the work, and we can kill Until them. Well, they, 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 believed, they believed there was enough of them in 1938, but by 1944, they were running out of them. And in fact, the, the prisoner personnel cards, of which I have my father's in, is in the book, most of the prisoners who were sent there, their prisoner personnel cards said, return not desired. And so the capos, there were no Jews who were capos. I mean, in some of the camps... Jews were elevated. Capos were essentially what it comes from. Nobody actually knows where the word comes from, but if you know the mafia, mafia has capos or captains. There you uh. go. So they're, so they're sort of intermediate, intermediate level people. Right. Um, they were not Germans. I mean, they may have been Germans. They were not allied with the administration of the camp or the SS. Um, they were prisoners themselves, but they were given authority. They might have run a bunk. They may have run a work group, which were... Which were um, you know, a, a group that, that worked in the stone crusher. They were called commandos. 
um, so they may have run a commando. So um, a commando is a is a um, it's a, a group. It's simply a it's group. It's a group of people it, doing a certain it, kind it, of work. It's, it's like the British use of the word commandos for. In fact, it's where the word commando for the military comes from, because the British would call a group of soldiers a commando. Okay. So you emphasize in the book that death was always present, uh, including in the work they were forced to do. Can we explore some of David's experiences of his work details, which he called commandos? Sure. So. When he first arrived in, Gu- in Munhausen, when we sent off to Guzen, his first attempt at, at how he was going to get his way through this concentration camp was he said he was a carpenter. He probably was not a baker. He certainly was not a carpenter. Um, and yet they took him. He spent a day or so. I don't know. It was, he said it was a day in the carpentry commando. Um, they figured out he wasn't a carpenter. Don't have any idea why they didn't kill him for the ruse. But they put him in the, the um, what was called the Kostenhof Commando because the name of the mine, the granite mine, was called Kostenhof. So my father then was moved to the Kostenhof Commando, and his job was simply, when when granite was dynamited, you had now anything from you know two pound to two hundred pound pieces of granite, and he and the other prisoners had to move them to a central depot. Then from the depot would be sent to a, the stone crusher. He was part of that process. After thirty days. He was moved to Guzen 1. He was originally in Guzen 2. Guzen 1, he was sent to a commando that, whose job it was to load mine carts, push them about 200 yards, and unload them into the building that housed the stone crusher itself. And he's, in his view, it was not particularly horrific work. It was nonstop work, which he really didn't like. His first commando, where he was working on the rock wall, he got breaks when they were doing dynamiting. In this case, it was nonstop, but at least it was work. It was it was consistent. He knew what was expected of him. Uh, the compos, he said, were not especially horrific, although one nearly beat him to death um, at some point. But then again, this is the difference between my father telling it in my memory of it and now you asking me about it. Yeah, yes, it, it, yeah, they were they were really nice and sweet, although they nearly beat him to death. Okay, so right. Um, but he survived. In his telling, he survived there right the way until about November of 1944. So let's call it six months in total working in this in this um, area. And, and then he lost 80 pounds. He, well, at, by the end of the war, he had lost 80 pounds. At this point, he's probably down at six, down 60, right? Right, right, exactly. When he starts at 160 or 150, he was a kid. Um, and then he was sent to the infirmary. And he tells the story of going to the infirmary in a sort of funny way. But having read the book, you know that when he was sent to the infirmary, he was put into a room called the Bahnhof. Bahnhof is German for train station. Every, there, it, was, it was a nickname that the prisoners had given this room because the room was where you went to die. You were all going somewhere and going somewhere soon. So my father tells a funny story of how he ends up in the Bahnhof, but, but there's, there's nothing funny about being in the Bahnhof. This is one of those disconnects that I experienced yeah. For for forty years of listening to my father tell the story, and then I suddenly undisconnected when I was doing the research. I said, "Wait a minute, he he could not have been in anything but a near death condition to be put in the bonhop." And yet, after a few days in the bonhop, they moved him to the regular infirmary because somehow he convinced people there he wasn't going anywhere. Mm. Okay, Can, I, I, that's one of the themes of your book: is your father's use the word good fortune, lucky fortune. That somehow, or divine intervention, as some have said. You said you found, well, okay. You, you said that you counted six times when he should have died. Yes, yeah, so in fact, the six came, I, I could actually probably count more, but, but the historians in the camp, who I worked with very closely, at one point in one of my trips there, uh, after the trip that I described in the book, stopped me and said, you know, your father was the recipient of six miracles. And they ticked them off. They just—they had identified six times, six very discreet times he should have died, and did not. Uh, this one, is a narrative that's in their head. It's, it's like in it's their part head. of their yeah. He well, remember to go back to the 2007 experience of seeing his picture on the internet. Yeah. They had put his picture there because they found him and his experience have been remarkable and unusual. They had somebody right. who not only survived the camp, wow. but who had been hidden by a local family. So it was a feel-good story from them. 
And then it, it went from the feel-good story for them to this miraculous story as they got to know me and they got to learn more. They didn't know my father had escaped twice because the people who hid my father after his second escape, my father didn't say to them, you know, this is my second time around. I, right. I, I, I messed up the first time. No, they only knew of one. When yeah. the concentration camp historians learned of two and all the other details that I gave them, they on their own had put together that he was the recipient of six miracles. There were, wow. there were no Jews involved. There are no Jews that I'm aware of in the, in the, in the, histor- the group of historians who work in my housing. Um, but they're very, they're evangelical, they're very religious in their own right, um, and they feel my father was, um, you know, God looked look down on him and helped him survive. This, the, the moments of, of him being saved, of these miracles, I, I urge our listeners to kind of t- take it up and, and read the book. I mean, you can read each one of them. They were, it's unbelievable knowing the reality of this situation that he was in. Sure. Is there one in particular that you can, that jumps out that you say, how did he survive that? Um, I would, certainly his first escape um, and the multiple number of times well actually even his, his first death march leading to his first escape. why don't we before we get to that because maybe we can lead yeah. up to that is it's about death the death march, march. so thank you Anna. all right so as the u.s army approached kz mudhausen in austria the nazis moved thousands of prisoners away from the battlefront on what they what had been called death marches what was the purpose of moving all those people and why not just kill them so mudhausen as we talked about really was not a camp for jews but as the Americans were getting closer from the West and the Russians were getting closer from the East, um, the Germans recognized that they had to do something with the 30, 40,000 Jews that were all caught in this pincer between the Russians and the Americans. It turned out they were somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, 25,000 Jews, and they decided to march them all to Mudhausen, and they built a tent camp to house them. Once they had them all in Mudhausen, by the beginning of April 1945, so a month before the war ended, they started marching them to another camp called Guzen. Guzen was, it was called a camp. It, what it really was, was an enclosure. It was nothing more than barbed wire and a few buildings. No sanitary facilities, no food facilities, nothing. And so between 750 to 1,000 Jews a day were marched out of Mudhausen and towards Guzen. My father was in one of the first marches. About three miles or four miles into the march, my father could not, and this is the the answer to your question about um, what stands out more than anything else. So this is one march, not taking more than a few hours. He starts, it's downhill about four, for about two miles. About two more miles later, and I don't know exactly where, it isn't like he said anything happened in the corner of 42nd Street and Broadway. He just was describing things with time and element and I pieced things together. He went to the side of the road. If you went to the side of the road, an SS trooper would shoot and kill you. But sometimes, they'd give you a chance to get back up and get back on the march. My father went to the side of the road a few miles into this first march. He'd had it. He'd had it, he was toast. And he knew he would die. He knew he would die. And a trooper was walking towards him, they made eye contact, and the trooper holstered his pistol and kept going. Like, my father was incredulous. But that act, gave him this burst of energy that got him back up. And he got back on the road, and two miles further on, I believe, because again, I'm guessing locations, but I know there was an intersection. And in that intersection, refugees were going north, my father's line of march was going west. They stopped my father's line of march directly behind him. The refugees, my father was the last guy in the intersection. The refugees didn't feel like waiting for this one emaciated Jew to get across the intersection. And they went. And suddenly my father's caught up with these refugees. And a light bulb goes off my father's head. And he says, well, heck, if I just turn with them, maybe nobody will notice. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you only weigh 80 pounds. Um, you're wearing a concentration camp uniform. And no one's going to notice. But he did it. He turned. He took two steps. He found a raincoat on the ground. He amazing. put it on. Yes, there's amazing. There's a miracle. Puts his raincoat on. Because if he didn't find the raincoat. If he doesn't find the raincoat, he's dead. Yeah. He finds the raincoat. I mean, I presume he's dead. Because yeah. somebody is going to say, yeah, what gonna you're, not, you're not dressed like we are. Why yeah. are you here? Yeah. Right? So he, he, he finds his raincoat. He goes about 100 yards. And then now this, this drifts into sort of what all the research was in the book. I, always, I didn't ask the question, but I now wondered, why did he go 100 yards before knocking? He knocked on a door. 
I always assumed the reason he didn't go 100 yards, he went 100 yards, is because it was fields. There was some big intersection. No. It's that there were the backs of buildings and no doors to knock on uh, at that intersection. Okay. And I didn't know that until I went there. Right. But 100 yards up, the road narrows, and there are apartments or homes, you know, typical European narrow, windy street, and there are homes. And he knocked on a door, and an old woman answered, and my father spoke fluent German. He spoke Yiddish, and he's, therefore he spoke German, and it became fluent in his year in the camps. He knocked on a door, the old woman answers, and he says in fluent German, I'm hungry, would you feed me? And she invites him in, and she gives him cheese and noodles, and she allows him to wait in her backyard. And this was heaven. This was, yeah, exactly. And he's, she allows him to wait in her backyard. Whether she noticed he was wearing a concentration camp uniform, unclear at the beginning. But eventually, she goes back to him. My father says 15, 20 minutes, a half hour, somewhere in there. She says, you got to go. All right, can I make one point? Because there's Absolutely. one image. There's one image that it just, I can feel it. He, lay, he lies down on grass. Exactly. Grass for the first cool time in a year. grass. Meal for the first time in a year. Grass yeah. for the first time in a year. Yeah. The smell of grass and the kind of yeah. that you, life if, that's if there. If you played ball you know, in, 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 uh, on a ball field when you were growing up, you know what that smell of grass is yeah. like. Or cut grass you know, from when the, when the And of course he'd want to stay there. It was like it was just... No question. He was and in she, heaven. She said, you got to go. And my father, he's 18 years old, 19 now. He's 19 years old. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going, I'm going. But he didn't go. And five or ten minutes later, she found two SS soldiers mm. patrolling on the street outside, and she called them in. Young, young boys. Young boys, younger than my father. And these guys turned out to be Hungarian SS. All the occupied countries could, if you wanted, if you felt like kowtowing to the Nazi um, dogma, then you could join the SS. And they did, um, and they were Hungarian. They didn't know my father was Hungarian because they debated in Hungarian what to do with them. They were actually, they spoke to him in German. My father was responding in Yiddish. Um, and, and they decided to take him to the local police station, which was only about a third of a mile away in the town square, which was a third of a mile away. And so you think of this from the time he left camp, the time he went to the side of the road, then, then the intersection and the raincoat and these Hungarian SS not killing him. And then he goes to the, to the gendarmerie, essentially a local police station. He goes to the gendarmerie and the gendarme inside says to my father, says to the SS guys, you go, I've got the prisoner. Now, I didn't know, never asked, how did he get the authority to do this? It's because the gendarmerie worked for the same Heinrich Himmler who ran the SS. Okay. So they had essentially equal rank. So he outranked these kids. He tells them to go, and he asks my father in German, tell me how you got here. My father tells a story. He says to my father, I'm going to let you sleep the night here in a jail cell. I'm going to feed you dinner. I'm going to feed you breakfast, and I'm going to get you back to the camp. So are there six miracles in this story alone? Wow. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Probably. Yeah. But did he think that when he was returned to the camp that they might kill him? No question. And they took him back without a word. So did, so the way you describe it is like he walked into the camp, and no one even noticed That's he, the way he describes it. And not only that, he goes back to his old barrack, and barracks and and um, people are saying, what, "What are you doing back here? You you were just on this de- on a march. They don't call them death marches. They only knew them to be transports. You right. were just on a transport. What are you doing back here?" My father told people what happened. He said half the people didn't believe him, so he stopped telling people what happened. Wow! I'm back. Wow. Yeah, and just say there, he was on a second death march. He was on a second death march about ten days later. We know the date of the second one. We don't know the exact date of the first one. And on the second one. Same intersection. Um, he had, you know, energy to get there. It was about six miles from the camp, seven miles from the camp. When there was no activity in that intersection, he was now really done. And about a mile or so he later, he was done before. Now he's really now done. he's really done. It, well, you, there were there are reserves of energy that we have that we just don't know. And then when we're done and we have no more reserves, mm-hmm. we have more reserves. And wow. he kept digging into reserves that he didn't know he had until finally. About a mile and change after that intersection, he was completely and totally done. And he went to the side of the road, and a trooper came over and put a pistol on the back of his neck. But it was late in the afternoon, around 6 o'clock at night. My father had a sense for timing that is savant-like and accurate. I mean, he didn't didn't write any of this stuff down. He didn't have a watch. He figured about 6 o'clock it was drizzling and it was cold, and the pistol was cold. And the pistol on the back of my father's neck shocked him, and he stood up. Whoa. And in the act Whoa. of standing up, the soldier decided not to shoot my dad because now he's up. And now he's up. Now he's up. 
and, and, my, and he walked away holstering his pistol. And my father looked behind him, and there were two more SS troopers, and they weren't looking at him. They were walking backwards, and there happened to be nobody in the march right where he was on his left and on his right. There was a path leading into bushes, and he just bolted down the path and threw himself into the bushes, and no one saw him do it. Oh, oh. my gosh. And, and you found that path? We found the exact, we found the path. We found within, let's call it, inches of where he went to the side of the road, sat down, and had a pistol put in the back of his It's neck. an amazing story. And it's an amazing story of, well, his will, obviously, but your will to, to actually spend the time and the effort and the, the emotions answers. to... Well, it, it, and it was, a, it was an emotional journey. And the more emotional it became, the more determined I became to get to the, to the point of where I knew all there was to know about what happened to him. Right. Um, and then... Do you feel now that you, you know it? I do. Um, I mean, I still wish I could ask him the thousand questions and, and confirm a number of things, but there's no question we know the first intersection. There's no question we know the second intersection. Yeah. There's a lot of things we now know for sure that I know he experienced. Yeah. I would love to say, I would love to stand there with him and say, Dad, so how'd you feel when you were bolting down this path? Or how did you feel when you turned in this? I've been in the intersection where he turned. Yeah. I, I, I took... There's a photo in the book. Dad, I went, see. I did this, I, I investigated. Yeah, I, I would have loved to have done it with him. It sounds like he acted on instinct a lot. Uh, no question, and an incredible instinct. In, yeah. Whether you call it lucky instinct or divine intervention or somewhere in between, um, yes, he operated on instinct. Um, he you know, became a, a businessman and an entrepreneur, and that's, there's usually no rule book for that. And I think he, he got his training surviving that camp experience. Wow. We have to say something about the Freedmans. Sure. Because the Freedmans were the ones that discovered him. He, looked, he pretended like he was dead. Yes. On the side of oh, the road yeah, yes, the, uh, yes. after the second uh, escape attempt. Yeah. But they actually saved him. They, they saved his life. They, they saw my father lying by the side of the road. My father played dead. He didn't want anyone to discover him. He figured he would, he would try to get into town on his own and sort things out. He had changed overnight into the clothes of um, a dead civilian on the side of the road. Oh. So, so they stood over my father at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning debating in German, which of course my father understood, whether or not he was alive. And they determined, they decided, either he wasn't alive or they, whatever, for whatever reason, they decided to walk away. My father gets up and he, and he decides he's going to go into town. All 80 pounds of him. He's wearing civilian clothes. Why not? Right? He speaks German. Yeah, he had taken the clothes off of a, a dead he, prisoner. A, a dead man on the side of the road. Yeah. There, were, there were many dead along the side of the road. Dead civilian. Dead, well, in, so if you were in civilian clothes, it's because you had been in the labor battalion that had been forced marched to Mutthausen in the weeks while they were building this 20, 25,000 Jews capacity, and then they were put on the road to Guzen. So my father found one of these guys about his size, dead on the side of the road, changed into his clothes. My father was wearing spilling clothes. Anyway, after this, the, the freedmen walk away, my father gets up, and he walks down the path that he had bolted down. The path turns out to be a shortcut to the train station. Well, he turns around a bend. The, oh, by the way, the path followed a river, a small stream, really, um, towards the train station. My father turns around a blind bend, and there's the couple walking right towards him. And the couple's grandchildren, were sh the couple showed their grandchildren where this was, precisely where this was that they saw my father. Wow. And so, and I, I know the grandchildren, and, and they don't speak a word of English, but I've gotten to know them, and we exchange cards, and, and I've... And I've hung the, the every time I see them because without when, when, when you went back it must have been like finding family you never had it is exactly like that it is finding it is and they found it, you it's finding it, well family almost isn't quite enough without them I'm not without their grandparents I'm not here right you know when I went and I first saw their house for the first time it, it that's was my house it, this is the house I was born in if you want to take it to that yeah. but so this, this, when the freedmen saw my father that morning, they had a little discussion, and my father said he was a Czechoslovakian escaped prisoner. And they told my father to go back to where they'd seen him playing dead, hide there. It was a hiding place. Hide there. Or, or, there, or I should say that it was, it was a place where he could hide. He hid there through the day. They, they brought him some food in the morning. And that night they came with their horse and, and a carriage and took or a, 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 a cart and took my dad back to their house, which was only about a quarter mile away. And he, they hit him there for three weeks. And it was, they, they hit him there. I mean, there's more to the story. There's than much there more to the, Yes. But they hit him there long enough for the Americans to finally break through. Yes. And get into uh, ends. The Americans came in three weeks later, almost exactly three weeks later. Um, that also is just amazing. The timing is like, 
Yes, it, it is. And as you know, in the book, I track that group. And in fact, the yep. 65th Infantry Division is having the reunion in October in Dayton, Ohio. They've invited me. I'm going to be there. Beautiful. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. This is Patton's. Uh, it's Patton's, part of Patton's 3rd Army. Um, right. The last division put together in the, by the U.S. Army, specifically for World War II, the 65th. Uh, if our listeners want to learn more about um, this escape and how this all happened. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, we wanted to have you, we, we wanted you to read a piece of, um, of your book. Um, and, and this is um, a section about, um, which I found quite, kind of, it, it put a visual in my head of prisoners being marched, possibly a death march, but they're walking through cities, they're walking through towns. Through towns, yes. Next to houses, which people are living. Yes. And what are they seeing, these people that there's, are living in these towns? They're seeing people, in, in this case, what I'm about to read, they're seeing prisoners being marched from the Mudhausen train station to Mudhausen. Back to the question of the story that my father told. My father said when he arrived in Mudhausen, the first thing he did was take a shower. That's not true. The first thing he did was hike three miles uphill in a broiling June day after not having eaten for four days. The train station was three miles away, and they walked through town and then through the suburbs of town where there were houses along the road. And so people in these houses could see these prisoners being marched, these, these poorly fed or unfed prisoners, and probably in better condition at that point because it's early for them and their war experience. But they're looking at these people. Right, and as if we're, we're here at Get Parks. We're on the porch. There's glass all around the, us. Yes. What if we saw it down, coming down 72nd, a bunch of prisoners it's being... It's exactly like that. What would, a, what would we do? Re read what, I mean, it's, it's, it's really beautifully written. So I've, I've pulled, I was in a car and I pulled over. So eyeing a home across the road from me, I say, I wonder what it would have been like to look out your living room window and see prisoners marching past on their way to or from Mutthausen. Perhaps the families of these houses were warned not to look, Angelica replies. Perhaps, I acknowledge. But I wonder even more what my father thought as he passed by. Did he make eye contact with anyone behind the windows? Or was he so consumed with merely trying to move forward that he wasn't thinking at all? Whether going uphill or down, my father was probably so wrapped up in the precariousness of his life as a Jew, caught in the teeth of the Nazi death machine, he may not have been thinking of anything except the next step and the next and the one after that. It would have been nice to be able to ask him now, ask him what he thought back then, alas. We get back in our cars and drive on. And, and your, your guide, Angelica, uh, was very uh, key because she had done a lot of work. She had done to help a you find these places. And and it was sort of we were both motivating each other. She, like I said earlier, that we they didn't know when I first started where the death march route was. Angelica wasn't in the picture at the time, but when she did get into the picture, they were beginning to form a sense as to what the death march route was. And then I'm out there trying to get my father's history, and that really lit a fire under her. And she was the one, in fact, who found the two intersections. Again, you know, my father didn't say he escaped at the corner of, you know, right. Broadway and 72nd Broadway Street. Seconds, yeah. but, but based on his description, right. the, the 100 yards with no doors, Angelica said, oh, it could only be this place. And the second escape place with the, the bushes and trees, it turned out there were only two possibilities. In, in, assuming you believe that he couldn't have walked more than a mile or two from the intersection that he had escaped from the right. first time. So if you triangulate all these data points, you end up knowing... Right. What my father experienced. And the Friedman's grandchildren confirmed. That must have just been so yes. amazing. You've you've lived your whole life with Seder, 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 right? Yes. And it's like your father, your, your whole life. And it's like now you're there. It's going from a comic book to a color movie, a color feature film. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah. how much of what you've discovered has changed your life? And how has it changed your life? That's a great question. Um... It is not changed it dramatically because I've known the story my whole life. So there, was, there wasn't a question of discovering something unique about my dad, but recognizing just how horrific his story really was makes me honor him all that much more. Um, understanding myself better, as, as you read the book, you understand that I now know why I do that litany of things, list of things. That, that know, we talked about at right. the beginning. Right. right. I, I mean, I, I know lots of people who do one or two. I don't know anybody who does quite the number that I do. And it's not because I'm a great athlete, because I'm not. I'm an okay athlete. But I do a lot of things, and I truly enjoy them, but it's coming from somewhere. And it's coming from 
that notion of trying to somehow equal we all try to equal what our parents have done so so recognizing that I'm never going to equal what he what he's done takes the pressure off me and, and, and I've palpably felt that I think I you know I that experience that I had of recognizing I'm never going to be able to be as quite as good as as incredible as my father was makes me feel a lot better about getting up every morning and just being me just being you just being me. now you have permission to be you exactly since writing this book, you have spoken with young people from the ENDS area in which your father was a prisoner. Um, what were the circumstances of these conversations, and um, how did the young people react to your father's story? So the historians in the camp, along with other citizens who live near the camp, there's a, a number of them, I'd say a total of 15 to 20, who have made it their lives' mission to get the word out as to what happened in Mudhausen. Remember, not just to Jews, but to non-Jews. What Mudhausen, how horrific it was, what it was really, Mudhausen and Guzen, because as you know, Guzen is now a housing community with a very small memorial and, of course, a working mill that might perhaps one day become a, a larger memorial. So when the book was published, these historians put together a week of me meeting with townspeople um, one large meeting, I was introduced by the mayor. Um, Enns was the town where he escaped, and Enns is the town where the Freedmen's lived. Enns was six miles away from the camp, from Mudhausen camp. Um, so he put together, uh, the, the mayor put together a meeting, and these historians put together a half a dozen meetings with two to three hundred high school kids at a time. And it was a really pretty remarkable experience because these kids vaguely knew what had happened up the road or across the Danube, you know, a few miles away from where they lived, but they didn't really have any way to, to put it into, in, to make it tangible, to, to touch it. And now I'm standing there and I'm showing them photographs of my dad when he's 12 and 14 and 17 years old, their the, age. Their age, yeah. Their age. Um, and I, at one point I, I, had, I had the kids, any kid between 5 foot 10 and 5 foot, and 6 feet tall, stand up and I'd say, okay, now picture yourself at half your body weight. Do you think that you could have done the things that I just described my dad did? And also a lot of them had never met a Jew before. Wow. Which is, they, or, or literally one of, there were no Jews living in the area. There were apparently many hundreds of years ago, but not now. So many of the people that I, many of the kids and adults that I met really had no relationship with Jews whatsoever. And so I was the representative Jew. And when you think about if they learned the history of World War II, all they knew when they would, is what they would describe. They saw photos of Jews probably incredibly emaciated, um, or if they've ever encountered recent stories and recent photographs, they're looking at an 80 and a 90-year-old. And so all of a sudden, they see me, right. and they see photographs of my father when he's their age, mm -hmm. and it puts it into context for them. And so, without exception, I had interesting or interested audiences um, I had great questions um, it was it was an eye-opener for me and I think an eye-opener for them wow yes Jack um, Hirsch this has been um, a roller coaster ride there is so much more here we've been talking with Jack Hirsch author of Death March Escape it is a harrowing look into the depths of horror that can be created when we see the other as garbage. But more importantly, it is about enormous strength, will to live, and how sometimes there can be an unbreakable love between a father and a son. Um, by the way, I just want to mention that the incidental music that are being playing for this BCR episode is from Fred Lairdahl's duo, performed by Rolf Schulte on violin and James Wynn on piano. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and next up we will be talking with members of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 who are facing decades in federal prison for their protest against U.S. nuclear weaponry. And again, we want to thank Jack Hirsch for joining us here at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar yeah. on West 72nd Street, down yes. the block 
uh, across the street from the mortuary. mortuary. Down the street from Trader Joe's and Papayas. And Papayas. And they're they're getting to their uh, uh, in their bar um, like uh, wizards and mixologists, and they're making a drink for the fall, which we had a yeah, here taste at Gepharts, of. Yeah. Here at Gepharts, a little, so you know a seasonal drink, and it's um, rye. With it's a it's a Manhattan a little with vermouth rye, and bourbon, vermouth and a, a little bit of uh, bitters and maple syrup. And, and they, they serve it. It's called uh, the Maple Manhattan. They serve it with a candied maple bacon. Yes, it was actually delicious. Doesn't sound kosher to me. Sounds, but sounds good though. It, it sounds was, like dessert. No, we it tasted is, it. He yeah. made one for us. So Matt well, Gephardt is, was experiencing. I may have to taste. leave my straight Tito's on the rocks. There you go. All right. Oh, well, that's your yeah, Tito's is great. Yeah, that's how you should. Um, what a trip! What a trip! Read, read it. Read it, everybody. Um, Death March Escape. Thank you yep. for having me. Thank you, Jack. <laughs>